Well, good morning and welcome to those who missed the first one. Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 25 this morning. Now, before, typically I'll read first and then we'll talk about context, but we're going we're gonna to jump into context a little bit before we get to the, uh, to the reading of Scripture this morning. So the passage that we have, the, the heading for it in your Bible, most likely says uh, the parable of the ten virgins, which is a section heading that I feel gets more difficult <laughs> as the years go on, uh, as far as understanding what this passage is about. The passage is about these, uh, these ten young women that are identified as the ten virgins that uh, are participating in a marriage wedding ceremony. Now, there's a couple things that we need to know before we get into this to understand what's happening. Because a lot has changed in the last 2,000 years, and marriage customs, like everything else, are very different now than what they were then. So a story that would have made perfect sense 2,000 years ago, if we read it in our context, um, doesn't really make sense at all. Starting with, the, starting with the identity of the young women in question. Now, really what these women were, the best way to understand it in our modern context is that they were bridesmaids. What would happen in weddings in their day was, first, there was a betrothal, and that's something that's significantly different now. In our day, being engaged to someone means that you may or may not have spent a bunch of money on one of two rings. But other than that, it's not legally binding. It's really just a agreement to do something. In their days, the betrothal was the first part of the marriage. And before the wedding was fully consummated and the man and woman actually started living together, they would be betrothed for up to or even longer than a year. You had to get a divorce to break a betrothal. Right? I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people nowadays that if that were the case, they would be in trouble. <laughs> so that was different. And then what would happen when they got to the actual wedding ceremony, which is what this passage talks about, one of the traditions was that the bride would be at her parents' house with all of her, her, her bridesmaids is the language that we would use. The young women that were there to support her and care for her during the wedding. The groom would come, usually or always at night, for this part, and for the kind of the beginning, the kickoff of the ceremony, he would come to her house and they would travel by night in this procession from the bride's house to the groom's house. Now, because it was at night and because they weren't in a limo or a bus or anything like that, because they didn't have flashlights, they needed light. And so they would bring with them torches. The closest thing we have, at least that you could picture, is like a tiki torch. If you were here for Reach the Beach, we went and bought all of the tiki torches that Lowe's had in stock, and we had this massive wall of fire going down to the road. It was super cool looking. I can show you pictures. That's what it was like, and that was the purpose of it, is as the groom was coming, those who were waiting at the house of the groom for the new couple to arrive would look out, and they would see this procession of fire coming up the road. 
And they would see all of these torches lined up in a row, signifying that the bride and groom were arriving. And so they could see where they were going because of these torches. They could see the road in front of them. They wouldn't trip and fall and get hurt or anything like that. It was practical for them. It was also a symbol and and this really nice image for those who were expecting them. So that's the scenario that we're looking at here. I was always confused growing up because there's no bride mentioned in the passage. And so I was like, wait a minute, are they waiting to marry the guy? Is this like a The Bachelor kind of scenario where he's like going to start with 10 and by the time they get to the other house, there's going to be one? What is happening in this passage? But that's not the case. So that's what's happening. These are the bridesmaids that would be attending the soon-to-be wife of the husband on this procession to the groom's house. So now that we understand a little bit better what their weddings looked like, now let's get into the passage and figure out what's going on. Then, the, And I'm going to substitute at least one or two modern words in just to help us Understand. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps, also often translated torches, right? So it's like like Indiana Jones stick with a cloth wrapped around it. You dump oil on it, light it on fire. Anybody gonna no Indiana Jones fans? All right, that's all right. Uh, where was I? Verse one. I didn't get past verse 1. And went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So this is one of many parables that Jesus gives to help us to understand what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Now, when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven... And we understand this because, no, remember, no one of these parables gives us the full picture. We can't pick just one parable of Jesus about the kingdom and, and believe that it will give us a full, clear understanding of what the kingdom of God is like. One of the things that we learn about the kingdom of God as we read all of these parables and teachings is that it is something that is now, but also not yet. It is something that we will one day experience fully, but we experience now in certain degrees. The kingdom of, of God is, is the heaven that we look forward to someday, but it is also the dominion of God on earth now as we turn to him, as we turn our lives over to him, as we are sanctified, as we 
are made holy, as we give him authority to work in our lives. All of that is the kingdom. And so he gives us this one parable to explain one thing to us about the kingdom. And so when we look at these parables, again, we're not trying to figure out everything. We're trying to look for what is the one thing about the kingdom that Jesus is trying to illuminate for us here. So he likens it to these these bridesmaids who are waiting, and there's ten of them, and five are wise and five are foolish. You realize just how foolish the foolish ones are when you realize that the average torch would probably last for about 20 minutes before it needed to be refilled again. You would dump oil on it, you light it, you'd get 15, 20, maybe a little bit longer amount of time before it went out, and then you would need to re-oil it and keep it burning. You also need to realize that uh, compared to our culture, punctuality for them was significantly less important, especially since they didn't have cars that could drive in exact amounts of time to other places, and they didn't have clocks everywhere, that when something started, it really started roughly at some time. So the idea that they would have a torch that could only burn for 20 minutes, they really had no idea exactly when the bridegroom was coming, and unless he lived next door, they wouldn't have had enough oil even if he had showed up on time. They really came completely unprepared to go out and be a part of this procession. When they realize that the bridegroom is there, it's also interesting that there's no condemnation for any of them for sleeping, which is probably a whole nother sermon. But they wake up, they realize, and then they go to leave, and they ask those who brought to share with them. The wise answer given, of course, is there won't be enough. If we give you half of what we have, we'll get halfway to the bridegroom's house, and then we will all be in darkness. So instead, they send them, and they go to the shopkeeper's, And if there was a wedding in town, the shops would typically stay open as late as they needed to to make sure anything that that was, was of need at the wedding would be provided. So they go to purchase their own. What's interesting about this, though, I noticed is it's never a part of the discussion. It's never a part of the discussion whether these women just go along with no light. It's not even mentioned in the story. And the foolish bridesmaids give this ridiculous option of share your oil with us, which obviously means that they will all run out and have to just stumble and trip along in the darkness, and then they'll knock on the door of the, of the groom's house, and no one will know that they were coming, they won't be ready. They give that foolish option, which makes no sense, but it's not even mentioned the possibility of traveling without light. It goes without saying, in other words, that if you are in the procession with the bridegroom, you are providing light. Now, practically, that really doesn't make any sense. Because, realistically, if 
we had 10 people and five of them had torches and five of them didn't, that would provide enough light. That if I had a torch and someone next to me didn't, I could hold the torch here between us and we'd both be able to see the ground in front of us. We'd both be able to keep from stumbling. They could use my light practically to make it to where we were going. So from a practical standpoint, that would be the best solution. If we're just trying to get 10 people from here to here, just share the torches. There's no logical reason why that wouldn't work. Which is why it's so important that the parable gives us the story, not just of people out for a walk, but people in a wedding. Where there was more going on, where there was more at stake, where there was more significance to the people there than just the practicality of being able to see where they were going. If you want to be really honest, it would be a whole lot more practical just to go in the daytime. Right? Just go in, it's light out. You don't have electricity yet. Use the daytime. Practically. But this is a wedding. And they go at night. And the torches serve the practical purpose of lighting the path before the wedding party, but they also serve the purpose of announcing the coming of the bridegroom, identified as Lord. So I began to think about that this week in my prayer time. It wasn't even an option. It wasn't even an option for them to go along And not bring any light. Now certainly, with the ten of them there, with with the ten torches, there would be a significant amount of sharing of light. And you can imagine, if you've ever stood outside with, with like a tiki torch or something like that, that one will give you light, but if you add a second one, it drastically increases what you're able to see, especially if the second light is going before you and in front of you. So there was a sharing of light, that the more lights were there, everyone was benefiting from everyone else, but everyone was also contributing. I've noticed something in my life, And this falls into that category that I mentioned here and there of things that I've seen too often not to believe that they're true, but I still can't really explain why they happen or how it works. But here it is. Maybe you've had the same thing. I find that if I am sitting hearing someone preach, Like if we're on vacation and I go to another church, and if I have a notebook in front of me, even while paying attention to the sermon and hearing what the pastor is saying, because you should always listen carefully when the pastor is preaching, I will come out of that with two, three, four, or more full sermon ideas, illustrations, ways to say things, just If I, and it doesn't happen every time, but it happens a lot, that if I'm sitting listening to someone preach, I just start getting ideas. They just start popping into my head significantly, undeniably faster than at any other time. 
I can go out and, and, and sit next to a river in a comfortable chair with my Bible doing my devotions. I can sit in my recliner at home. I can sit in my office with worship music playing. Undeniably, I hear, I receive revelation of scriptural truths more sitting under someone else's preaching. Another example of this, recent one, um, I, uh, one day when I was visiting Pastor Fred in the hospital, uh, it was the day that Joyce had gone gone home and I, I was spending the afternoon there and he was asleep and I had my notebook and I, for whatever reason, just had some thoughts begin to come into my mind and I wrote out two stanzas of a, a piece of poetry and then didn't touch it for two and a half months. And then Fred's funeral was a couple Saturdays ago. And I had thought over and over and over about maybe I would finish that piece and read it at the funeral. And that I could never, never do it. I never finished it. Wasn't able to. For the most part, forgot about it. But then when I was talking that morning with Kevin about what he wanted me to do for the welcome, he said, whatever you want, anything you have, you can say anything. You can, if you want to read something. So I thought, well, maybe I should do that. And then there was issues with probably the video feed and this and that and saying hello to people. And all of a sudden, it was eight minutes until the funeral started. And I still only had two verses that didn't make sense as an ending. And I went and sat in the back pew. And uh, in eight minutes with people stopping to talk to me and coming into the aisle and back and forth, I wrote another two full stanzas of the poem. And it wasn't terrible. <laughs> should add that. It, it wasn't bad. Now, that's not because I'm quick on my feet. Now, I am quick on my feet. I love speaking publicly. I loved doing the extemporaneous speeches in speech class. But it wasn't that. It was a moment of, of inspiration, a moment of just it, just, it just flew onto the page. And because I know myself, I know what I'm capable of creatively, I know that that wouldn't have happened anywhere else. But in that room with all of those people gathered for the holy purpose of honoring and celebrating a servant of the faith. Something that I hadn't been able to write in weeks suddenly just fell out of my hand. Now, I don't know the spiritual science behind this, okay? I don't have, I don't have a formula. I just see this happen all the time. And that's a good thing. We benefit one another. I've also noticed, though, in my life that 
If I can only come up with a sermon topic when I'm listening to somebody else's sermon or when I'm with another pastor in their office and we're working together or when I'm talking to someone else, if it only happens in those times, that to me is a red flag. That to me is a red flag that my torch is getting really, really dim. Because that tells me that I'm walking by the light of someone else's. I'm walking by someone else's light. Not by my own. It's much easier to walk through the woods if there's ten people with flashlights lighting up everything than it is by yourself. But if you suddenly find yourself alone and you can't see a thing, then you weren't prepared. So I've begun to use that as a metric in my life. I seek out opportunities to be with other believers, to be with other pastors, to engage with other Christians. Because it's a blessing to me. But if that's a requirement, if that's the only way that I hear the voice of God, I know that I've got work to do in my spiritual life. I received a wonderful piece of advice from a, a mentor of mine. We were talking about you know, the times in your life where, where the, the torch is getting dim, so to speak. And a suggestion he made to me, well, he said this was the same suggestion he gives married couples that are struggling. He says, if someone comes to me and says that they just don't feel like they're in love with their spouse anymore and it's just, it's gone dry and they're really struggling in their marriage, he says, well, I want you to sit down and I want you to think about all the things that you would do if you were madly in love with your spouse. If you had just fallen in love, if the relationship was still fresh, you were still young and excited and and just passionately in love with one another, what are the things you would do? Write those things down, and then go do them for a month. I said, do that same thing. Do that same thing in your spiritual life. Imagine what your life would look like if you were just passionately devoted and on fire in your faith. What would your, what would your study time look like? What would your prayer life look like? And then go do those things. I've, uh, when I got to commentaries this week and read through what scholars say about the passage, it, it seems like there's, in the past, there has been discussion about, well, what is the oil? Is it faith? Is the oil your works, your actions? And most commentator, commentators encourage us to kind of move away from that and not get so caught up on what the oil is, but no one really talked about what the fire represents, which I think is the more important piece of the story. And no one talked about that process of trimming the wick, of adding oil, of maintaining the flame. And I think that those are pretty clear when we look at Scripture, because we are labeled by Jesus in other places as a is a lamp on a stand. Light is an imagery often attributed to the church. We know that, that the idea of light in the darkness is what the believer is meant to be. 
that if we are in the kingdom, believers carrying torches, we are believers that light up the dark places in our lives. That we reveal sin and brokenness for what it is in others. We show people a different way to live. We speak into people's lives in a way that that we are able to see things about them and their situation that they don't understand themselves. We bring light. And I'm less concerned about what the oil is. I'm more concerned about what does it look like to keep our flames fresh and vibrant. And that, again, is not any real stretch to figure out. We know what it takes. We know what it takes to attend to our spiritual walk. Or at least we know where to start. The bigger, the bigger issue is that we just don't notice it. Especially if you're in church a lot. You ever start your car in the city at night and then all of a sudden you get to the back road and realize your headlights were off the last 10 minutes? Those of us who grew up on dirt roads in Vermont, that happens a lot because... You get confused by the street lights and you just think it's daytime. That one was a joke. Sorry. You ever do that? You get to your car and because you can see, you don't realize that your lights are off. And you can come to church every Sunday and, and watch our worship team and their experience of the Spirit and, and listen to me talk about the study that I did throughout the week. And go to Sunday school and meet with other believers and, and hear things from them that you can apply to your life and go home with a you know, little checklist of these are the things I'm going to do this week and not even notice, man, I am walking exclusively by other people's light. And that's the beauty of the church because, hey, things happen, Right? You're walking with a torch, and all of a sudden the cloth falls off onto the ground. It happens. And everyone else is there to come around and give you light and support you and illuminate and help you fix the problem. Because it's a whole lot easier to trim and fix a torch with light surrounding you than in the pitch black in the middle of the road. It's the beauty of the church. But it can also enable us to become stagnant. Because here's the thing. Walk the path laid before you. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you how long it should take for you to reignite that flame. I'm not going to tell you to hurry up and trim your torch faster. I'm not going to tell you to rush through it. And sometimes God puts us through difficult times. Sometimes we walk through seasons when our, our faith is, is weary. And sometimes that's because of our lack of attention. Sometimes it's God just drawing you into a deeper understanding of who he is and drawing you into more learning about who he is. So, hey, I'm not... I'm not telling you to hurry up and get out of it. Do what you need to do. 
allow your church to illuminate the path while you do it. But this is what the kingdom is meant to be. Again, there's no option for people to walk without flame. There's no secondhand light in the kingdom. Big picture, right? Again, if your lamp goes out on the way, we'll fix it. But you don't just make the journey with a dark torch. It's not an option in the passage. But here's the beauty of it. And this is something that I think we're often afraid to talk about in the church because we're afraid of being just about growth and just about numbers. We're afraid of glorifying certain churches and criticizing other ones. But, but numbers make a difference. And we know God can do big things with, with small amounts of people. I'm not talking about that. I know, we, we, we know that where two or three are gathered, he is, we know that. We're not talking about that. But numbers do matter. And it's not just me, because Jesse already preached this. When she was talking about NYC, and if you've ever been in a room like that with that many people, and I've experienced both. Rachel and I, the, the last church service I led before I came here was in our living room for a group of seven or eight young adults that had been in an incredibly unhealthy church their entire lives. They'd never been allowed to attend another church ever. And one of them was, was 30 years old, never been allowed to attend another church other than their home church. Our small group was their first experience of the Christian faith out of the community that they were born into. And then their church closed unexpectedly, without warning, on a Thursday. And so Sunday we said, hey, we're having church at our house. Because you guys need to be in church this week. And they came, and there were 12 of us in our living room, and it was powerful, man. It was, it was loud, and it was passionate, and it was powerful. Absolutely. It was a, a memorable, when I'm 70 or 80 or 90 or 100, how old do I have to say before I'm saying older than everybody here? <laughs> I said, well, nope, nope. When I'm however old that is, I'll remember that one. But, I'm also going to remember in 2002 when a kid from a church of 30 people in northern Vermont had an old beat up falling apart piano that my dad had to get a nail file and he would file down the sides of the keys every Sunday morning so they wouldn't stick together. When I left that church and I went and joined what would have been my youth group, my friends from Connecticut, we went down to Creation in uh, Pennsylvania. And it was the year it was the year Michael W. Smith released his first worship album. Right when that whole trend started of big artists releasing fantastic, amazing worship albums. And I saw Michael W. Smith headlining at Creation. 
main stage at night, no other concerts. And he just did only songs off the worship album. I don't, I don't know that, I don't even know how many original songs he played. But he was there and, and he just played his worship stuff. And so after going to concerts all day, I gathered with probably 60,000 people in this field in Pennsylvania while Michael W. Smith led worship. And man, it was just, it was incredible. And it was different. Because there was just so much light. Now, does my saying that detract at all from the service that we had seven months ago in our living room? No. It's not better, it's not worse, it's not, but it was different. And I'm not going to pretend like it wasn't because we don't want to be about numbers. It was different. Here's the reality. I want you to hear this. Our church is brighter when you are here. Now, there's a lot of reasons I like to see people in church. When the room is packed, is that encouraging to a pastor? Yes. I'm not going to pretend like it isn't. It's nice to feel like I'm doing something right. And I'm in constant prayer to make sure that stays in a healthy place. But there are other reasons why it's important for you to be here. And it's not for the offering. It's not to make our numbers look good to send them to the district. The room is brighter when you're here. You do make a difference. Our collective worship is shaped by the people that are in the room. That's why my philosophy on preaching is a sermon is never done until I dismiss. I have not written, first of all, I don't write my sermons. Second of all, it isn't written until it's preached. Because it's not about me giving some well-thought-out speech. You're a part of it. Even if, I, even if I manuscripted my messages, I could say it word for word in my office. That's just me talking. This is preaching. Because you affect it. And I believe you affect what I say. I believe you have an effect on what I say as we gather in this place, as we're in the Spirit, as I do my best to faithfully preach what he tells me and calls me to preach, so that I'm speaking the words that you need to hear, and we're all just trying to discover what he's trying to say to all of us. You matter. And this is the best way I know of to explain why I miss you when you're here, when you're not here. And do I, I mean, I love all of you. I enjoy our conversations in the foyer. I love catching up. I love all those things, but it's more than that. And if you're struggling, I want you to be here to receive healing. But I also want you here because every person that walks through those doors ready 
makes it easier for everybody else. The room is brighter with you in it. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe for some of you, this is a, this is a wake-up call. Maybe that metric is one that you need to take into your life and like I do, begin regularly assessing where are the places where I'm hearing God's voice and if it's only ever with other people, maybe there's something that needs to be done. Maybe there's an adjustment to be made. But beyond that, as a church, it is important that you're here. We do this together. Sunday morning is an amazing time. It's a time to celebrate. It's a time to heal. It's a time to rest. It's a time to get ready for whatever the week ahead has in store. I don't care how many people are in the building, but I know if you're outside, we'll be better when you're in. Let's pray. Jesus, it is so significant. Presence is so significant. And we're just a few weeks away from the beginning of Advent where For the month of December, we're going to explore that significance, what it meant for you to come and be with us. That you were not a savior who saved us remotely. You saved us in person. You were in our midst. You were in the dirt and the mess and the pain. You were in the middle of all of it, Lord. You were present here with us. So we know, Lord, as a church, that our presence is significant as well, that we are a people who gather together. We know, Lord, that some can't can't be here. We know some who are watching from home. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit be so tangible and so present with them. I I pray that we as a church are, are reminded of the need to reach out to those people, not just for practicality, not just, hey, do you need anything? Can I buy you groceries? But but presence, Lord. It is your spirit. It is your spirit that is the flame within us. It is your spirit that provides the light. It is all, it is all your sourcing. It doesn't matter. The, the oil isn't faith. The oil isn't works. The oil... Confidently, we can say, it's just you. It's your spirit. You are what empowers us. All of our light would be nothing without you. I pray, Lord, that we be a church that trims the wick, that attends to the flame within our lives so we can burn brightly and gather together not only on Sunday morning, but in in every way as your church that we gather together to multiply that light, to illuminate a world that is just stumbling around in the darkness.
May New Beginnings Church be a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand, giving light to all around it. That even if people still can't see where to go, they know what direction to head, and they just follow the light until they're in your presence. May we be a beacon that beckons the world to come. Your power and your people for your world. I love you, Lord. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.